Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We are trying to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we are here to spoon-feed you the latest research. All right, let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, high-flow nasal cannula pumps way more oxygen than standard nasal cannula do. But is it better when we're using them during intubation? Second, then we see how neonates do for high-flow nasal cannula during intubation. After that, the top 10 list for the best articles in pediatric emergency medicine from 2021. For the fourth article, now if I tell you it's a placebo, will it still work? And then from the fifth article, we've all seen them on social media, fellow physicians spreading misinformation. Let's talk about that. Now, if you are hearing my voice right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, I pick my favorites, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you will have to become a member. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now, we don't ever want anyone to feel like money is a barrier to their patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, please get in touch and we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by myself, Vivian Lay, Dendrick Cooper, and Clay Smith. Okay, we're going to jump way over to the third article and start there. Updates in Pediatric Emergency Medicine for 2021 out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now we're getting a little bit meta. We're doing summaries of an article writing summaries. Here are the takeaways from the top 10 pediatric emergency medicine articles from 2021. First is the CAPIT trial. This was an RCT randomizing children to shorter durations of antibiotics, seven days of amoxicillin versus three days at both high and low doses. The primary outcome was need for additional antibiotics, and they found that the lower dose for only three days was non-inferior to the other options of treatment overall. Unless the patients had severe disease, in which case low dose and short duration was actually inferior. Next was an analysis of high-risk breweries, a multi-center retrospective cohort study analyzing outcomes of admitted brewery patients. Of all the brewery cases that they saw, 37% were admitted and 1.3% had life-threatening diagnoses. That's much fewer than previously found, and we may benefit from better stratification of these patients. It can also make you feel kind of better, though, about sending home low-risk breweries, since even the high-risk, I mean, they weren't that high-risk, still high-risk, though. After that was a big retrospective study looking for factors that can make a pediatric patient high-risk for COVID. The factors that they identified were shortness of breath at presentation, age younger than four months, cardiac disease, and immunocompromised state as the most important factors. Then, a multi-center retrospective study to analyze the association between giving steroids for retropharyngeal abscesses and the outcomes that happen thereafter. There was indeed an association with a benefit when steroids were given, less need for surgical drainage by a significant proportion. They also received less CT scans, had less opioid use, and had lower hospital costs. And then how could we forget the 2021 guideline updates for febrile infants from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Let's do a quick overview. For infants 8 to 21 days old, you have to obtain a full sepsis workup. This includes basic labs, blood and urine cultures, LP, give them antibiotics, and admit them to the hospital. For infants 22 to 28 days old, 
one of the main changes in this guideline, this is the group that kind of had the most change from the previous set of guidelines, is that these patients will receive basic labs, including blood cultures and urine cultures, as well as a procalcitonin and CRP. Children who are well-appearing with normal labs can forgo the LP, though they should still be admitted to the hospital for further observation, plus minus antibiotics depending on the management from the inpatient care team. If any abnormalities are seen on lab testing, then these patients should be admitted with an LP and start antibiotics. For infants 29 to 60 days old, well, they're worked up as the previous group with basic labs, blood and urine cultures, and inflammatory markers. And if the patient is well-appearing and the labs are normal, then they can actually be discharged without antibiotics, but with close follow-up with their primary care physician. The next study was on DKA, which showed no association between the rate and type of fluids on cerebral edema. There was no association between serum sodium and mental status or cerebral edema either. Then a study on neonatal mastitis, trying to quantify the co-occurrence of serious bacterial infections like bacteremia, meningitis, or UTIs. This was a multi-center retrospective study over 10 years, and they found 657 patients with mastitis. Six had co-occurrent serious bacterial infections. All the patients were described as well-appearing, but this is about a 1% co-occurrence rate of mastitis with these serious bacterial infections, and because of this, the authors recommended admission for all of these neonates with mastitis. Okay, almost done, only two left. The most common fracture seen in children is a radial buccal fracture, for which a removable splint as a treatment is, seems to be adequate. These patients were given a removable splint for their radial buccal fracture and then randomized to either follow up with their primary care physician in two weeks or to just remove the splint at home when they thought it was appropriate. They found that at-home management was non-inferior to having a PCP follow up on them in terms of return to function and compliance. Both groups also seemed equally satisfied with their care, but obviously staying home is cost-saving. And then finally, the last article of these 10, a retrospective study to identify risk factors for neonates with invasive herpes virus infections. The feature with the highest predictive value was a vesicular rash with an odds ratio of 55. Other significant features are age less than 14 days old, age 14 to 28 days old, and seizures. Okay, that's a wrap. In a spoonful, there was a lot of stuff coming out that was really important in the world of pediatric emergency medicine from the year 2021. Then we have the fourth article titled Effect of Open-Label Placebo on Children and Adolescents with Functional Abdominal Pain or Irritable Bowel Syndrome, a randomized clinical trial out of the JAMA Pediatrics. Placebos, jeez, ah, they're just really amazing. It goes to show the power of your perception and how your mindset can really change your life in a tangible way. The biggest problem I have is that, unfortunately, I can't just give placebos to my patients. It's not ethical. Unless, of course, you told them it was a placebo, of course. But would it still work if you told them? You know what? Let's try it out with IBS and functional abdominal pain. This trial was a multi-center crossover RCT enrolling 30 patients aged 8 to 18 years old with functional abdominal pain or irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. 80% of these patients were female. Patients had a baseline of seven days of observation period and then were randomized to either receive an open-label placebo or, well, nothing. The placebo was a sugar pill and they were told exactly what it was. And then they got the placebo for three weeks and then they got no placebo for three weeks or the opposite where they started without the placebo. Now, I love this. You're going to love this. 
pain scores were significantly lower by visual analog scale during the placebo period, 40 millimeters compared with 45 millimeters. Patients also took more rescue tablets of hyoscinamine during the control period compared with the placebo period. The only unfortunate part here is that how can you blind a placebo that kind of defeats the point in a way? So then you're really left wondering if these children were perhaps trying to please the researchers. It was only a very small trial, but it still shows some power to this placebo effect, even if you know it's a placebo, though the effect size was admittedly, well, was small. In a spoonful, children with functional abdominal pain, or IBS, who knowingly took a placebo, still found benefit from that treatment compared with nothing. And that's it. Let's do the quick wrap-up. Let's go over the major points of everything that we talked about today. From the third article, we did a quick summary of the top 10 pediatric emergency medicine articles from last year. From the fourth article, not quite convincing enough that I'll start handing out sugar pills, but this trial showed some benefit in pain for pediatric patients with functional abdominal pain or IBS who knowingly took a placebo. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling some FOMO or you'd just like to hear more, more of me and more from the blog, then you can come over and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.